So our passage is Judges chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heba the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaaninim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heba the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. 
But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin king of Canaan before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin king of Canaan until they destroyed him. Let me pray. Lord God, I I just ask you to um, be with us now as we look at this passage of the mysterious days of Judges, and we pray that you speak clearly to us and encourage us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. So this morning we're at the second of our judges' sermons and uh, we're looking at how God worked through an unusual set of um, characters to defeat an oppressive foreign king. And just for the sake of context, I'll just repeat what I I said last week in some of the background that I gave last week, where You've got to remember that what's, where we are in history with the Israelites is that there are, the 12 tribes of Israel are in the Promised Land. Joshua has died, and they're spread out through the Promised Land. But there are also other foreign nations there, foreign tribes living amongst them who are resisting the Israelites and, and, or even controlling them or oppressing them in the case of the book of Judges. So in our story, through the period that we're up to now, Israel is being oppressed by the foreign king Jabin, king of Canaan. And the key enemy character that we're going to trace through this story is not so much King Jabin himself, but rather it's his army commander, Sisera, who has 900 iron chariots in his army, very powerful man. And our story uh, this morning takes place several decades after Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar, who we looked at last week. We are now with a new generation of Israelites but repeating the same problems. Israel has not learned from their mistakes. They are repeating their problems of unbelief, apostasy, or sin. And so they're going around and around in circles with God. So let's look at verse 1, trace it through, and I want to unpack it and open it up and then see what it means for us. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. Ehud is dead. If you read Judges 3, you'll see that Ehud was a former great judge of Israel, and the impact of his defeat of the uh, evil king was long-lasting. You know, we had the last week how Ehud pulled out his dagger and stabbed the king on the toilet, and he was dead, and uh, Israel had peace. And then it talked, mentioned in one verse, in verse 31 of chapter 3, Shamgar, this unusual character who also played a role and uh, knocked off 600 Philistines with a farm tool. It, Crazy times. And so it's mentioned here that Ehud is dead because he's a major figure. Um, Shamgar's probably more of a minor figure. And the literary cycle that's about to happen again is unbelief and apostasy following by some oppression by a foreign king, a calling on of Yahweh by the Israelites, deliverance, peace, and then again renewed apostasy. This cycle has begun again. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord punished them by sending them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazel, which was a fortified city of Naphtali, about 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, or what we now know as the Israel-Lebanon border. 
This was once a powerful city, and you can actually go and see the ruins of this city today, still there. So our story introduces us to Sisera, the commander of King Jabin's army. He was a leader of the Sea People, who arrived in Canaan from the region around the Adriatic in the early Iron Age. And his 900 chariots are mentioned because it just, it's like saying, you know, he's got 32 nuclear submarines and, you know, he's got all his, his missiles pointed at you. This was the latest military hardware. It made the enemy a virtually unstoppable force on the low flat land across the Jezreel Valley. So King Jabin and his military commander Sisera were able to oppress Israel for about 20 years because of their chariots, because of where they were positioned and their might and their power. They had locked them down. So the position of the Israelites seemed hopeless, which is why they cried out to Yahweh. It was a cry of desperation. So now we're introduced in the passage to Deborah. How does God respond to their cry? He speaks through his prophet Deborah the wife of Lapidoth, who was leading Israel at that time. Deborah was a prophetess, it says, and in that sense, she was a little bit of an unusual character at first glance. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament were men, but there were some notable female prophets. There was Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, who led the other women by praising Yahweh after the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, after their escape from Egypt. There was Huldah, the prophetess, who played a key role in Josiah's reforms. There was Isaiah's wife, the prophetess, who bore him children, who became key members of his band of disciples. And so in the New Testament also, we've got Anna, of course. I think I preached a sermon on her once, Anna the prophetess, and the four daughters of Philip the evangelist, who exercised a prophetic ministry. The gift of prophecy was present in the New Testament churches from Pentecost onward and was exercised by both men and women. Remember what the prophet Joel famously said about the coming of the Holy Spirit, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. So while it was unusual for Deborah to be a prophetess, and it sort of sticks out a bit, um, it's not without precedent, and it seems to have some other examples in the Bible, and it definitely is moving towards the way things will be um, under Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit that God could speak through, um, so, some, through people, including women. But what's more unusual about her, it's not so unusual that she's a prophetess, what's more unusual is, is that she's a judge and she's the leader of all of Israel. Now, that has no other comparison. She ruled the nation as a whole. No other woman in the Old Testament had that office. And there's no parallel to it in the New Testament. The character she most looks similar to is Samuel. Some say even Moses in some ways. Samuel travelled around judging Israel in various places, whereas she sits still under a tree, under a a palm tree, and the Israelites went to her. Samuel was also associated with the similar places that's mentioned in our passage, Ramah and Bethel, and Deborah is associated with those places. Samuel appointed Saul and David as kings. Deborah is going to appoint Barak as Israel's deliverer. The fact that the leader of Israel is a woman at this time is extraordinary. And this shows you a little bit how strange things are at this time. But we shouldn't think that she's got some kind of diminished leadership. Don't hear me as saying she's not, don't take her seriously. 
The Bible says nothing. The passage says nothing. There's no mention of this not being part of God's plan. Quite the opposite. Deborah rose up as a mother in Israel, chapter 5 says. She brought stability and good order to what was previously a chaotic situation. The fact that the Israelites went up to her to resolve their disputes on a national scale, it's, the only other time we've seen that is Moses. No other character in history had such significant authority. But having said all that, our story this morning moves on very quickly from Deborah. She's there, she's behind the scenes. Uh, she's there at the start and then she's behind the scenes. And then chapter 5, which we didn't read out but I've got included in the booklet so you can look at it, is Deborah and Barak singing and reflecting and interpreting theologically what happened in chapter 4. After Deborah, we're introduced to Barak. Deborah sends for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kephesh in Nephtali. And Barak, his name means lightning, not the president of America. Well, it was a good name for him. You probably should have used that more, lightning. I'm your lightning president. The Canaanite god Baal is often depicted as riding on the clouds. So the fact that um, Barak is lightning, his name means lightning, maybe has something to do there. You know, often in um, the Bible stories, there's a kind of a poetry going on in the meaning of the names and stuff. And it's good to know this. So Deborah gave Barak God's instructions to take 10,000 men to Mount Tabor and God will guide Sisera and his chariots into their hands. So Deborah charges Barak solemnly in the name of Yahweh. And Barak responds by imposing a condition. He says in verse 8, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, this action of Barak saying this to her is interpreted in all kinds of different ways. What's he actually doing here? Some think he's being scared at this point. I read one scholar who said, who, who said it this way. He said, Barak is hiding behind Deborah's skirt here. He's scared. Another person that I read said, actually, Barak is not scared at all. He's brave because he does go and take on this full-on army that's got 900 chariots. So how can you say he's scared when he actually goes? And the fact that he says, Deborah, I want you to come with me, shows you his faithfulness because he's saying, I acknowledge you, Deborah, as the prophet of the Lord, and if I'm going to go and fight Sisera, I want the prophet of the Lord with me, standing by my side. And I think there's a merit to that interpretation. Some other people say he's being manipulative, trying to put conditions on Deborah and God, perhaps. Is he being a wimp? Is he being faithful? Is he putting conditions on her? It's a bit hard to know exactly what, what's going on here. Perhaps it's a little bit of a combination of all three. Either way, Deborah is surprised. Saving Israel with the military is usually man's work in these, this period. And Barak has already received his orders and has been assured of his victory. So she agrees to go with him. And she says, verse 9, But because of the course you're taking, the honour will not be yours, Barak, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a, of a woman. Some think Deborah is saying to Barak, this is a lack of your belief that this is going to happen. You're not going to get the honour for this victory. You're going, to, you're going to win the battle, but you're not going to get the honour. And some think this is like a, a punishment. But perhaps all he's saying or she's saying to him is a statement of fact. How things are going to pan out are not the way you expect. You will undertake this course of action 
but you will not get the honour. A woman will. And as we read this, we assume because Deborah, the prophetess, is involved in the story, probably the woman is going to be Deborah. After all, she's a great leader of Israel. Probably she'll get the credit rather than Barak. Nevertheless, the battle plan has been worked out and Barak is assured of victory if he will do exactly as Yahweh has commanded him to do through Deborah. What we've got to spot here is that the real commander of this army, of Israel's army, is Yahweh himself. Barak is just his deputy. You might remember back to the, the Good Shepherd series. God is the, the ultimate shepherd and his, in the Old Testament and his prophets are like the under, under shepherds and, and in the New Testament Jesus is the, the chief shepherd and uh, his disciples are like the under shepherds. And it's kind of like the same thing here. Barak is the military leader, but he's actually the deputy. He's like an under, underling under God, who's really the leader of, God's, of, of Israel's army. Now, in verse 11, it, there's this verse here that sort of seems to not flow in the storyline. And it's kind of like what happens in a movie when the movie cuts away and goes and looks at another piece of action somewhere else. It's got nothing to do with the storyline, or it's a side point. And that's what's going on in verse 11. We're introduced to a new character from a, a clan that's mentioned a few chapters earlier in Judges, Heber the Kenite. Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zarnanim near Kadesh. So Heber is a Kenite. The Kenites are a clan connected to the family of Moses, but they are not actually Israelites. And Heber is with a splinter breakaway group from this clan. The Kenites were actually at peace with King Jobin. So you know how they say that saying that your enemy's friend is your enemy? That's what we're expecting here. This little side verse here, verse 11, is describing one of Israel's enemy's friends. So whatever's going on with that character, we're assuming is going to be bad stuff and it says here that Heber pitches his tent by the great tree in Zananim near, near Kadesh and we're left wondering I wonder why that tent is so significant and is being mentioned in our battle story what's going to happen in that tent not only that but the last time a tree was mentioned in the story was Deborah exercising her leadership under a tree. So there's a tree at the start of the story, and now here's another tree, a tent being pitched by a tree that's mentioned, it's singled out, this tree. What's going on? Well, anyway, getting back to verse 12, the movie goes back to the action. The story continues, and the battle unfolds, and verse 15 tells us that Barak's army succeeded, and Sisera's army crumbled. Now the story takes a dramatic turn, a complicated turn, when Sisera, the mighty leader of the enemy army, runs away from the scene of the battle, like in uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail, run away, run away, I love that scene. And we find out the significance of Heber the Kenite, what this tent is all about. Because Sisera has fled to Heber's wife's tent, and her name is Jael. Jael goes out to meet Sisera. And she can see that he is an important military leader. This just random woman, Heber the Kenite's wife, just walks out and sees him. She invites him in and she appears to give him protection. After all, they're allies. 
she gives him some milk after he asks for water. Sisera then asks, asks her to stand at the door and he says, if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, is anyone in there, say no. Now these instructions that he gives her are preemptive, aren't they? They foretell what's about to happen. They're, and they're kind of humorous. It's supposed to be funny, if you know the story. Because someone is about to come by that someone is Barak, and that anyone is Sisera. But she won't be lying when she says no. And we'll see, let's, let's see why she's not going to be lying. Verse 21, But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. There's the drama. There's not going to actually be anyone there anymore. She can say no. It's a dead body, not an alive body. Technical. It seems Jael, this non-Israelite woman, decided to shift her allegiances. She saw that Sisera's army had been defeated. She might have thought to herself, ah, maybe Israel's God's real after all. And for whatever reason, using deception and lies, a little bit like Ehud, who kind of the left-handed man with his secret dagger and pretending to be giving a tribute to the king and in fact going to assassinate him a little bit like that she left the sleeping military commander in her tent and tent peg through the head and she breaks two of the ten commandments here this woman she's lied and she's murdered she's not an israelite but still come on yet She's going to turn out to be the hero of this story. This is the woman that Deborah said to Barak, we'll get the honour. This random Heber the Kenite's wife, who just happened to be in the wrong place at the right time, who gets the glory of this battle. And God achieves his purposes through her. Verse 22, just then Barak came by, in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. Strangely enough, she is the hero. And that's what Deborah and Barak will sing in the song. If you look in chapter 5 at verse 24, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. We're going to have a worship song about this next week. And at her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. It's like a rap. In the end, God wins. He is sovereign. He achieves his purposes. Look back at chapter 4, verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. And at the end of chapter 5, it, they, they, it says that they had peace for 40 years after that. So what does this all mean for us? It means, as Ashley said, don't go camping. No, it means, here's, here's, here's my first application. God's sovereignty is mysterious. It shows us that God's ways are mysterious. He's in control, 
But how he achieves his purposes are very hard to know for us. Very unpredictable. Events in your life might pan out the way you don't expect. Perhaps you face disappointment. Perhaps things don't go the way you expected them to in your life. And you ask yourself, what is God doing? What is he doing? You think to yourself. God is sovereign. His hand is in everything. He is in control of the universe. And if you look through chapter 5 of Judges, it's all about this. It's the God who stands above the kings and the rulers. It's the God who causes the rain to fall. It's the God who causes the mountains to quake. He is the God who raises up the prophetess Deborah and who also raises up this random wife of Heba the Kingnite. It is God who has his hand in everything. We can't see what God sees. So in your life, when things are going unexpectedly, you don't know. There could be a Heber the Kenite pitching his tent down the road. You have no idea. From a foreign clan. And it's not Heber who's the key person. It's Heber's wife, who you, who don't, you don't even know. You don't know what God is doing. So when you pray, you can pray knowing this is the case. You can pray letting go of your control of your life. Saying, I, I don't know, God, what's going on. I've got no idea why life is going this way, but I put my trust in you. We've sung songs about that this morning. Putting our trust in the God who's sovereign. As Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven, not my will, but yours be done. A second application is this. God can use flawed people. He can uses, use, and he does use, flawed people to achieve his purposes. Just this week, there was this American uh, megachurch pastor uh, who created a storm because he quit. He'd already quit, I think, but he came out as saying that he was um, not a Christian anymore, not a believer anymore. And then he started on social media trashing the church. And, um, and he'd been a pastor of thousands of people and... And uh, it came out also that he'd had an affair with a woman in the congregation, so there was more to the story. But you might experience this kind of thing in your life where, you know, someone who's been key in your life discipling you then turns out to give up their faith. Often I hear testimonies, you know, or I, when I interview people and they say, there was this youth group leader in 1993 who led me to Jesus. Now they're not a Christian now, but I am. <laughs> And I don't know, this can be very discouraging when it happens to you. But God uses flawed people. If you read through Judges 5, you'll see that when Barak went off to fight Sisera, it actually named some other tribes of the Israel who didn't come along for the, for the fight. They, they abandoned Barak. Uh, they were a bit of a motley crew, the Israelites. And yet God used them to achieve his purposes. He used a flawed army because he can use flawed people. So this should be an encouragement to us because you and I are flawed people. You'll learn things about each other as you get closer to each other and confess your sins to each other and tell stories about your life to each other. You'll start to see, oh, we're all broken people and yet God can use us. He wants us to be faithful but when we're not faithful, 
It's not as if God stops being sovereign or God stops achieving his purposes. Sometimes we can wrongly think if we make a mistake in our life, if we choose the wrong path of some kind, that somehow God is, his whole plan is messed up. That's just not true. This is so far from the truth. God wins. And we do see this ultimately in Jesus. God did not win with Jesus by driving a tent peg through anyone's head, but by having a nail driven through Jesus' own hands and feet. The Son of God wins not by taking revenge on his enemy, but by giving his life up on the cross in an act of perfect grace. And like Barak, whose army half abandoned him, Jesus' team also crumbled in the last week as Jesus went to the cross to have victory over evil. And yet, Jesus did have victory over evil. He had the ultimate victory. God wins. His ways are mysterious and yet true. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you for this story um, and for the unusual characters and the, the movie-like script it has. And uh, we thank you that your ways are mysterious and that your plans are much bigger than what we can see. We pray that we can trust in you, hand over control of our, our lives to you. Amen.